our very, very terrific person and terrific Vice President Mike Pence. Mr. Vice President, a loyal soldier despite it all. He's ideological. He's a, uh, I, I consider him a zealot. I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. If you're fantasizing about Trump being turfed out of office, don't fantasize that Pence is going to be awesome. Pence kind of goes out and, and misleads the public. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. So, Heather, last week we talked about what the country and government might look like after the end for whatever reason of the Trump presidency, which a lot of people do think about. This week we want to focus on the man who most likely would take over for Trump if he doesn't finish his term, which he might not for a variety of reasons. Now, now Trump not finishing the term, of course – is something that people are thinking about. There's all sorts of, of demons besetting him at this point and forces, the Russia investigation, his sagging poll numbers. He's certainly not succeeding as president using the traditional yardstick. Many of his folks may say this is exactly what I wanted. Maybe 30, 35 percent of his electorate, of his support in the country is seems to be firmly behind him. Uh, so I guess the question that everyone is – uh, freaking out over in these first nine months is this kind of either or question that keeps coming up in the public consciousness. Is it better to stick with Trump or have a Pence presidency? Now, outwardly, Pence clearly has handled his role as faithful foot soldier to Donald Trump with great deafness. He went on television and said that the Comey firing was not about the Russia investigation. Let me be clear with you. That was not what this is about. That's not what this was about. Only to have Trump contradict him literally before the news cycles had run one turn. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made up story. It's an excuse. But, you know, he takes the whack. He defends Trump with his both sides comments on Charlottesville. Other top Republican leaders have rebuked him. Top military leaders have rebuked him. Business leaders have rebuked him for his comments on Charlottesville. And you continue to defend him. Are you putting your loyalty above and in front of what's in your heart and your gut? Man, I know this president. Uh, I know his heart. And, uh, and, and I heard him. I heard him on the day that the Charlottesville tragedy happened, when he denounced hate and violence. He follows just this past weekend the president's orders to attend a football game, San Francisco versus the Indianapolis Colts, when he knew the players on the San Francisco 49ers, the team of Kaepernick, would take a knee, at which point he summarily walks out. It was, hell, the thing was staged every bit as much as any decent reality show. Uh, the relationship between president and vice president always fascinates us. But now, I think more than ever, there have long been rumors that Vice President Pence has ambitions behind the number two slot. Look, who doesn't? Everyone wants the top job. Every politician dreams of it. And there is a new engrossing profile, quite incisive, full of fresh reporting in The New Yorker this week – laying bare Pence's desire to be the president of the United States. And a Pence presidency would certainly be socially and economically conservative, 
more of the traditional stripe without all the many distractions that are Donald Trump. Heather, what strikes you having seen so many couples, president and vice president, over the years? Um, the question, I think, is at this moment is, would we take a President Pence over a President Trump? And if so, why? And of course, there's different reasons to think about whether or not that's a good idea. Some people think that people who are opposed to what is happening under the Trump administration are better off staying with Trump because he's so outrageous that it's an easy target to hit in a way that Pence, who is much more deft on the surface, would not be. But I personally would take a President Pence over a President Trump for this reason. And that is that my understanding of President Trump is that he he is a narcissist. He can't back down. He can't accept blame. And he can't de-escalate. And to give the most powerful man in the world unlimited chances to escalate all of his feuds into an ultimate end seems to me to be a kind of danger that we don't face with a President Pence who would not escalate to all ends. That being said, President Pence, I think, would be deeply problematic for the country for two reasons. And the first is that in fact, as you say, he is much more old-fashioned, conservative, movement conservative Republican, very conservative economically and socially. But also the, the real emphasis of Vice President Pence has always been on his evangelical conservatism. And he is a person who believes that this is a Christian nation and that Christians must take back over the country. Of course, this is ahistorical. This is not founded as a Christian nation, and we don't even have to argue it. That's just a fact. So basically, putting Pence in is going to give you Koch brothers with an evangelical slant, and there aren't that many Americans who think that's a good idea. Let's bring on our guest this week, Barbara Perry, Director of Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center for Public Policy. I'm a graduate of UVA. I've been there many times. I love the place. Uh, Barbara, hello. Wahoo wah, as we say wah. at the University of Virginia. Great to Indeed. be with you both. Barbara, in The New Yorker, historian Joel K. Goldstein from St. Louis University, said that Mike Pence was sycophant-in-chief. Historically, are vice presidents more likely to be yes-men to presidents or not? This is something you hear a lot. Of course, the famous John Nance Garner uh, quote, vice president to FDR, that the vice presidency is not worth uh, a warm bucket of piss. Did I get that right? Warm pitchers, I sometimes see. Pitcher? Warm yes. pitcher? And and depending pitcher. on who's saying it, sometimes they say spit. <laughs> spit. I've heard spit and piss both. Uh, having, so... having come through Catholic school, we would have only been allowed to say spit. Okay. Right. All right. So let's go with spit then. Not that not um, that, that raises it all that much in that estimation. <laughs> Uh, Very good point. So speak, so give me some history here, Barbara, about this vice president's role. Right. Well, that's just one of the the best quotes about it. Um, I'm sitting here at Mr. Jefferson's university, uh, founded by Thomas Jefferson. He wrote to Benjamin Rush about the vice presidency as he was approaching and taking over the office. A more tranquil and unoffending station could not have been found for me. Uh, so in typical Jeffersonian uh, diplomatic language, I, I think that's a, a for, uh, foreshadowing of John Nance Garner and putting it in more colorful Texas language. First of all, we we start with this fascinating concept that the person who comes in second in the electoral college, the also ran, the the runner up, uh, is the person who is vice president. So before the Twelfth Amendment, 
is added to the Constitution to create a, a dual path, one for the president and a vote for the vice president. We have this just everybody votes, they get two votes, and the person who comes in uh, second gets to be vice president. So you have this when is the twelfth? When is the 12th Amendment, Barbara, just so we know? Uh, it's uh, 1804, I believe. Got it. Okay. Um, so you end up with this um, situation for Jefferson in which you have, for the first and only time, an inadvertent situation in which you have a president and vice president of the two first and differing parties and, and very heatedly opposed parties, the Federalists led by John Adams, the president, and then Thomas Jefferson as his vice president, the head of the what were then called Republicans, no relation to, to current Republicans. And so you have, for that model, um, as, as less of a sycophantic president as you can find uh, in the sense that Thomas Jefferson was going to not serve at the at the pleasure of the president to do his bidding in the case of his opponent, John Adams, uh, but that he would also be a partisan. He decided that he wasn't going to be able to be an assistant president, but it is still very much a secondary role up through most of the 20th century, really until we get up to Walter Mondale in 1977. Was, was that was that in some ways because Jimmy Carter was one of the first or, I don't know, maybe was the first of these more citizen presidents? Obviously, he was governor of Georgia, but he he had no federal experience. I think most of the presidents, if you look back across the 20th century, did have more experience in national government. And because I'm leading to the idea that we're getting a row of presidents now who are, or let's just say, lighter on executive experience or national government experience. And and that begs the question of would these presidents have more powerful vice presidents because of that? Well, you're absolutely right, Ron. If you look at the list starting with Mondale, I'm not sure you would say that Carter was the first citizen president, but certainly that spate of presidents in the post-Watergate era that were not of Washington and made it a point, they were governors, and so they made it a point, we are not members of the muck and the mire of, of bad and evil Washington. So you start with Mondale, Bush 41, Gore, Cheney, and Biden, and they were all chosen by presidents with little or no Washington experience, and the same is true now for, for Pence as well. So Barbara, tell me, what changes occurred? under Mondale and this new relationship, this new casting of what the vice president's role is. Right. Well, part of it is is symbolic that he gets a West Wing office. Up to that point, I think LBJ had gotten the closest in proximity. He had an office in the what was then called the old executive office building, now the Eisenhower uh, executive office building right next door to the White House. So you've got uh, Mondale moves into the West Wing. He also was included in the transition, dealt with much of the correspondence in and out of the president's office. And so Carter called the vice presidency an arm of the presidency. And uh, so for both, I think, symbolic and substantive reasons, you see a a real change in the the Mondale vice presidency. He really became a general advisor and and all-around troubleshooter for President Carter. Well, so here's a, uh, some pulling out of something you've talked about, Barbara, and that's that, you know, with Adams and Jefferson, one of the things that Jefferson did in his position that didn't seem to be worth very much was to jockey to be the next president. And it worked, of course, pulling his opposition together and going ahead and, and winning the presidency. And defeating Heather, as you, you know, not only winning, but defeating his president, right? Defeating in 1800, John Adams, the sitting president. Right, right. Well, I think that's a, that's probably something we'd like to hear a little bit more about 
about. But what's interesting about that moment is that once you have vice presidents who are then going to be on the same political ticket as the president after 1804, the Twelfth Amendment, then you have the the odd construct of the fact that the vice presidency almost always goes to somebody who can balance the ticket, either geographically or, as you have suggested, intellectually by bringing in experience in Congress or perhaps in the case of Mike Pence by bringing in the big Republican donors who were were appalled by Trump. So you have this sort of idea of a president and a vice president who are somehow complementary either to the voters or to the donors or to the system. And now we have Trump and Pence who are as oddly matched in a sense as somebody like John Kennedy and his VP LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson from Texas, who was, you know, a a brash Southern wheeler dealer who actually reminds me very much of Jefferson and his ability to handle intrigue. And in the case of Kennedy, this sort of much more genteel Eastern intellectual, and they didn't get along particularly well. LBJ hated JFK's uh, uh, attorney general and brother Robert Kennedy, and and yet that ended up being a productive second presidency with LBJ. Is there something here that LBJ could teach Mike Pence? I think so, and I think there's something that Jack Kennedy teaches Donald Trump. John Kennedy was nothing if not a a pragmatist when it came to politics. He could be idealistic, but he certainly was a pragmatist. And he followed that that Chris Matthews line about, you know, keep your your friends close and your enemies closer. It worked better for him, he knew, to get one of his enemies, who had been a a rival for the 1960 Democratic nomination, uh, Lyndon Johnson, get him out of his majority leader of the Democrats in the Senate and keep him close, but also respect him. I mean, John Kennedy did show him respect. And I think that's a lesson, as I say, that Trump could learn about Pence. And then I think Johnson behaved uh, quite well, given the way you described his personality, which is absolutely correct. But I think he behaved well as vice president. And I think he appreciated John Kennedy's respect for him. But I, I think that's a very good example to point to for both the current president and the vice president about how to behave in this now typical model, as you point out, Heather, where you have a balancing of the ticket that occurs, which then creates these strange political bedfellows. When you think about Mike Pence taking over for Donald Trump, if for some reason he is out of office, there are many places you can look for people who had to do something very similar. And there are obvious places to look. But one of the, the, the examples that has jumped out at me lately is a really unusual one that most people have never even heard of. And that is Chet Arthur, Chester A. Arthur, who took over for James Garfield when he died in 1881. And, and what's funny about Chet Arthur and the reason that he reminds me of Pence is that he was there because he was really operating in for the old line Republicans who were mostly interested in constructing the country's laws in such a way that the rich people got more and more and more. And he was corrupt. He was, you know, all these things, this list of things that make him look in many ways like a modern day sort of establishment Republican. And when he in fact takes office and the man to whom he reports, a man who runs the state of New York, a guy named Roscoe Conkling, shows up and says, well, this is great. Let's reorder the country now so that we get everything. And I'm paraphrasing here. Chet Arthur looks at him and says, no, it's not a game anymore. 
I'm the president of everybody, not just for the the people in New York City, the wealthy people in New York City. And he ended up for the rest of his term actually doing some pretty good stuff. And he recognized that he had lost all possible hope of ever being reelected. And of course, he's not. And he's fallen into disrepute and nobody or, or not even disrepute. People don't even know who he is any longer. And yet, in a way, he had the potential to do extraordinary harm, but given the power of the office, he stepped up to the plate in a really big way. And I wonder if that is a model that we could at least hope for with Pence. What do you think? Well, I, I think we have to hope for that. Uh, I, to quote from Bill Clinton, I still believe in a place called hope, <laughs> despite what's happening in our politics. And I, I think that we see some presidents uh, who rise to the occasion, particularly those, I count nine, vice presidents who've risen to be president of the United States by virtue of four deaths of presidents, four assassinations, and one resignation. So I, my sense is that some of those, first of all, Arthur, as you indicate, they're not high expectations for. You could say the same about Truman. You could say the same about Lyndon Johnson and Ford, for that matter, um, that, that oftentimes these people really are viewed as, as the, the also-ran or the, the runner-up in the Miss America pageant. And remember, at the end of that pageant, they would always say, now, the runner-up is very important because if Miss America, for some reason, cannot fulfill her duties, the runner-up will become Miss America. But who remembers you know, who those runners-up were? Only in the case of vice presidents, if usually by these tragedies, they become president of the United States. So we always have to hope that a vice president who rises to the presidency, even if we don't have high expectations uh, for him or someday her, that they do rise to that occasion. And again, someone like Truman, although Truman in his own time, as we know, goes out of office with one of the lowest approval ratings ever until we get to Richard Nixon. And yet Harry Truman has risen in the public consciousness as, as one of the near great presidents. And I would say Ford has done the same. And Lyndon Johnson, to some extent, uh, Vietnam aside. But I think all of those men rose to the occasion, whether it was recognized at the time or not. We would have to hope the same if Pence should become president. Maybe because what, 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 there's less riding on their riding on them when they go in, and they they feel they have more freedom. That's an interesting thought, Ron. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think one constant here is that everyone has changed when they step into that office, whether elected or they rise for the vice presidency. And Lyndon Johnson would say that. And and I think one of the questions here is: Would Mike Pence change? Would he be affected in this particular way to embrace a notion of? the only duly elected representative of all the people. Uh, that's a change. Some sort of change happens. We know that. Everyone says that when they look at, at stepping into that utterly unreasonable round room. So look, let's take a break. Uh, we'll be right back uh, with our guests, Barbara, uh, Heather. We'll be back in a minute. All right, we're back. You know, it is hard to gauge how much power Mike Pence actually has serving a president who was clearly challenged by the dictates of the office. You know, I covered, I think, the closest antecedent to this, which is the George W. Bush-Dick Cheney relationship, where Cheney, enormously skilled and experienced and tactically forceful, ends up being arguably the most powerful vice president in American history. And that dance between he and Bush was fascinating to watch as it evolved over the years, starts at the very beginning 
and Cheney is too much in charge. Uh, Bush's estimation of that is clarified early on when he says to Cheney, look, you've got to step back. And Cheney, deft as ever, says, well, Mr. President, yes, I, I see that as well, sir. And so what we'll do is I'll, I will pull back in some of these big group meetings. Um, and then afterward, you and I will, will meet. And I can uh, talk to you about, you know, choices and consequences and what was discussed. And, of course, that's exactly the arrangement that then takes hold where after the big meetings, there is a private meeting between Bush and Cheney where Cheney – uh, sits Bush down and, and describes essentially the sets of choices and consequences discussed. It was a tension throughout their presidency. Cheney had vast experience. He had served three presidents at that point, Richard Nixon in a key role, uh, Gerald Ford as chief of staff, and he served George H.W. Bush as secretary of defense. When it came to, to Bush and Cheney, there was a moment um, early in the second term of the Bush presidency where they got into some battles where Bush saw that Cheney's direction and advice as to the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq turned out to uh, maybe um, uh, not been, a, uh, you know, the most advantageous uh, bit of counsel uh, for this president to have accepted. And they fought at one point. Uh, Dick Cheney's right-hand man, Scooter Libby, was taken down, if you recall, in that battle over leaking classified information. Uh, Libby was convicted of a felony, and Cheney said, Mr. President, you need to pardon him. And Bush said, he's not my guy, Vice, and he broke the law. And Cheney said, basically, we're leaving a man on the battlefield, and that is morally wrong. And they were uh, pretty much broken up, this marriage, from that point forward, 2006, 2007. Uh, they talked less and less and often by the end very little. So, so that's a great question and a great place to go back to Barbara here. So let's go. If, if, if the modern world has given us Walter Mondale and Dick Cheney and perhaps now Mike Pence as these uh, really quite powerful figures in a way that for decades – centuries, the vice president did not have that kind of powerful role. Let's go through American history and see if we can figure out who are some of the more the other powerful vice presidents in American history and, and what they did and why we should care about them. Do you have any particular favorites, Barbara, that I can fight with you about? <laughs> um, well, because I tend to focus uh, more on the 20th century presidents and certainly on the, um, the post-war presidents. Um, Harry Truman, uh, again, I have a soft spot in my heart for him as someone who was has such a fascinating background. And having to follow FDR, imagine how difficult that was just before the war is ending. And so now the people have to turn to him to, to lead us through the, the end of the war. And, and again, sadly for him, he, he drops in approval ratings and, and leaves office with um, in the mid to low 20s approval ratings. But then I can also remember in the 1970s then, just before he passed, as we're getting closer to Watergate and we've got Nixon in office in Vietnam, is, is, is hot. Uh, and the, the group, the singing group Chicago had that song and it, it, it the line was, America needs, needs you, Harry, Harry Truman. Truman. <laughs> oh, we could sing it. <laughs> Harry, won't you come back home? Uh, and with Merrill Muller's um, book, Plain Speaking, the oral history of Harry Truman, 
Truman, uh, and then his death in, in the early 70s, he really it sort of captures the American imagination again. Uh, and so I, I think that he's somebody to focus on is, is just a common person. He was the common man, no college degree, risen up through the ranks, including his service uh, in, in World War One, to become now, I say, what is considered a near-great president. And, and yet I have to give us here now, I, I thought that I would hear you talk about Andrew Johnson, and we actually have to take a quick look at Abraham Lincoln's vice president, the second vice president, the first was Hannibal Hamlin, but the second vice president, Andrew Johnson, who takes over after Lincoln's assassination, who went into the office with his own agenda, which was essentially to return America to the state that the country was in before the Civil War, with the exception of having slavery. And the the lines that he laid down, the racial lines and the argument that any kind of government activism was somehow communism, I think taint American history to this day. So for all the fact we've had, we've lucked out sometimes with those also-rans. That was a case where Lincoln needed him on the ticket. He needed him to balance the ticket, fully expecting that he was going to live out his term. And all of a sudden, we have in the presidency a man who was deeply unfit for it and who has really skewed American politics to this day. So I guess in a way, it is a crapshoot. But we will hope if we get to the, the Pence presidency, we luck out with a Calvin Coolidge. I can't believe I just said that. Or a Harry <laughs> Truman. That's maybe a little bit better. But maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe if we're we really like... We need a song. America needs you, Calvin Coolidge. No, no. America needs you. you come back? Here we go. America needs you, Chet Arthur, Barbara. We could totally do it. We could quit okay. our jobs and become a I'm pop group. I'm a Broadway play here. America needs you, Chet Arthur. You know, they did it with Hamilton. We could totally do it with uh, do with Chet Arthur. We Heather, and we've got it made. <laughs> that well, look, that we I gotta, think we, would have to say. We, we got to find both of you agents at this point, because oh. I think this uh, you might make it to Broadway with this act. Um Let me think about my favorite vice presidents here. That's the topic of this moment. George H.W. Bush is a fascinating uh, character. I mean, he had a great, great deal of experience when he is tapped uh, by Ronald Reagan. He was an old world geopolitician, an old world politician, believed in relationships. During that Gulf War of 1991, he could pick up the phone and call world leaders and they had relationships. It wasn't like the first time they chatted. And that's why he could pull together a coalition that was in support of that U.S. engagement. That's an old style of presidential leadership. Well, what's funny about Bush and people tend to forget in this era when our politicians seem to be somewhat underqualified is he was, as you say, extraordinarily qualified. He was, you know, the United States ambassador to the United Nations. He had been a member of the House of Representatives. He was head he, of the CIA. He was head of the CIA, which in terms of... of being, as you say, having a broad vision of foreign policy is no small thing. He was... He was a warrior shot down at 18 years old, a real JFK kind of thing. You know, he was in the water. He was thought to be dead. He was plucked out of the drink. I mean, he was the real article. He was a politician by profession. He might in many ways have been the last of those professional politicians as opposed to people who rise, as you said, like Quicksilver because they are able to have star power. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I feel like I'm inhabiting the world of vice presidents. I'm living with a whole bunch of them here in the studio. Barbara Perry, Director of Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure and and honor and privilege to be with you both. I'm an avid fan. Hey, hey Barbara, I'll have my people call your people, okay? Let's do it. (laughs) 
don't pay more than 15% to these agents, okay? Just be clear about that. That's all they deserve. Uh, Heather, great to chat as always. Yeah, this is fun. I'm Ron Suskind, and this is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.